This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Atonement, recorded January 25th, 2009 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this is a response to a question that was left in the question box by Matt, there he is, who uh, did not say he wanted to be anonymous, so he gets outed. So here's the question. Regret and atonement from a mystical perspective. Many traditions emphasize some form of confession for evils committed, Christianity, Buddhism, etc. What is the mystical significance, since it cannot be guilt? Also, difference between intentional and unintentional, including careless actions that cause harm. Thoughts? Yes, I always have thoughts. I'm from New York. <laughs> anyway, I do have some thoughts on this, and uh, hopefully they will be helpful, and they probably can't hurt you. So, here we go. So, before we look at the mystic's esoteric view of confession and atonement, I thought we'd uh, place the whole question in a larger picture. I always like to get the big picture and then zoom in on you know, what the specific topic is. And this is really part of a paradigm that you'll find in all traditions involving transgression and purification. All traditions recognize some limits to human behavior. There may be taboos, there may be moral laws, precepts, or something. And then uh, all traditions have methods, ritual methods, for cleansing someone who has made this transgression. And this comes from an ancient intuition. It goes all the way back to shamanic times. And that is that suffering comes when we live out of harmony with the cosmos and its laws. And happiness comes when we live in harmony with the cosmos and its laws. And so the purpose of purification rituals and rites and so forth is to restore the individual, or sometimes the community, to that harmony. And this really is a very widespread phenomena through all traditions, East, West, and so forth. Some examples. In the ancient Mideastern societies, they practiced a ritual that comes down to us as scapegoating. In fact, we have a word in our language to make one a scapegoat. And the way they did it in these ancient times is they actually got a goat, brought it into the community, everybody heaped their sins, their transgressions on the goat, and I'm not quite sure how they did that, but you know, maybe they whispered to the goat their confessions or whatever, or wrote it on a slip of paper, you know, attached it to its fur or whatever. And then they drove the goat out into the wilderness. The idea was the goat was taking their, their transgressions out. The Native Americans at the end of the 19th century engaged in ghost dancing. And ghost dancing was designed to heal the community and then bring back the buffalo and the ancient way of life. And so it was, a, again, a purification kind of ritual. The idea was that this calamity had happened to the Native Americans, not just because Europeans had invaded, but also because there was some 
uh, sickness within the community. Something was broken. Black Elk talks about the hoop of the people was broken. And then uh, the Hindus had, and perhaps still have, I don't know, purification rituals to do after you've had contact with a foreigner. So if you were, let's say, a trader and you went on a trip to another uh, land and you traded with those people and you came back, the idea was somehow you were polluted by this contact with these foreigners and you had to go through a purification ritual to uh, get rid of this pollution. So these are some examples of more communal forms of purification where the whole community undergoes it. And the specific form of confession and atonement is usually more for an individual. It's to address an individual's sense of guilt for having committed some transgression. So some examples of that are in Judaism, and this is sort of a, has a double function, communal and individual. In Judaism, the holiest day of the year is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it's the culmination of a 10-day period of repentance and making restitution and so forth. So the idea here is both as a community, Jews get together and repent of their sins for the past year, but also as an individual. You're confessing your sins to God and you're repenting, and uh, if possible, you can make restitution. If you rip someone off, you might pay them back or whatever. So this is, a, a, again, a period of purification, this 10-day period that culminates in Yom Kippur. Catholics have periodic rituals of confession to a priest. You could do it, you know, once a week. You could do it once a year. There's no set prescribed thing. But you go and you confess your sins to a priest. And the priest absolves you and usually will give you some penance to do. You might have to say a hundred Hail Marys or something like that. But again, it's a way of periodically purifying yourself of these transgressions you've committed. Muslims confess to God. They skip the uh, priest. You don't need an intermediary in Islam. So you confess to God, and wherever possible, you make restitution to uh, somebody who's been a victim of your transgressions. And then in Buddhism, uh, they don't have a God per se, but they confess their sins to a superior. So if you were a monk or a nun in a monastery, you might go to your abbot or abbotess and you'd confess your sins. And a very important part of that is then to also promise not to repeat them. And so you're acknowledging that there's this transgression and then you're making a vow not to do it again. So these are some forms of more personal kinds of purification for committing transgressions. Now, in modern secular society, we don't believe in these things. We treat them as, uh, for the most part, superstitions, or in some cases as actually instruments for authoritarian control, ways that uh, churches and whatnot can control their populations. And we rely on the justice system to catch and punish transgressors, we rely, especially in this culture, heavily on the civil law to get restitution. We sue each other, you know, right and left all over the place. For minor transgressions, we have just, you know, apologies to say, oh, gee, I'm sorry I cut in front of you or whatever. And then if we are really burdened by guilt, we can uh, pay a lot of money to a psychotherapist and uh, go and confess our 
<laughs> our transgressions and, and work through them that way. I don't mean to make fun of it. I know people have gotten a lot of benefit out of therapies. But these are our modern ways of handling the guilt that arises from these transgressions. So, I think that in some cases, the critique of these uh, ancient rituals is correct. I'm not a big fan of scapegoating. I don't really think it... Uh, it may work psycho-spiritually for the people who are doing it. It's not very fun for the goat. Uh, so I would write that down as a superstition, personally. Sometimes confession has been used as an instrument for authoritarian control. So these are not invalid criticisms, but I also think we've gone too far in some cases. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And let me give you an example of this. Listen to Aeneas. Aeneas is the warrior hero of Virgil's poem. Virgil was a great Roman poet, and this is an epic poem about the founding of Rome. And the idea Aeneas has been in the Battle of Troy. According to legend, Rome was founded by Trojans who had lost the war, but fled across the sea and then established Rome. So there's been this huge battle, and here's what Aeneas says. In me it would be impious holy things to bear, red as I am with slaughter and new from war. Till in some living stream I cleanse the guilt of dire debate and blood and battles built. So he's referring to some purification rite that involves a baptism in a stream, living stream of water. And one of our problems as a society, for instance, we have no rituals or ways of helping returning vets trying to re-enter the society. So a ritual of bathing in a living stream could be very beneficial, I'm sure, for Vietnam vets, and now today we have all the vets coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth. In fact, I know some Vietnam vets who've gotten a lot of benefit from actually going to Native American sweats. <clears throat> so these are more exoteric forms of purifying transgressions, and I think most mystics would say that they have real psycho-spiritual value for people, uh, especially for alleviating this personal sense of guilt that arises from committing transgressions. Whether or not the underlying worldview still makes sense, like scapegoating or something, but still people get benefit from it. But I think mystics would also say that these rites and rituals of purification cannot put an end to guilt completely. That the seed of guilt remains. And then you go out and you commit another transgression and then the guilt arises again. So maybe you go confess to a priest or to God and then you get absolved. But then you do it again and guilt arises again. So it's not an ultimate solution to the problem of guilt. So then we have to ask, if we want to see if there is a, an ultimate solution to the problem of guilt, what is the nature of guilt? Really, where does it come from? And I think at this point it's important to make a distinction between guilt and regret. Now, this is my distinction, and you won't necessarily find it in dictionary or in other mystical teachings. All distinctions are ultimately imaginary, but they also are very useful. So I'm making this distinction, so follow along with me. We don't have to get into a semantic battle if you would like to make it a different way. But for me, regret is a feeling of sorrow that comes from having 
done some bad action. Uh, bad because it causes suffering to others. That's the definition of bad in my vocabulary here. Guilt arises not because I feel like I've just done some bad action, but because I start to feel like I am bad, that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. So in modern terms, we might uh, extend the idea of guilt to include things like feelings of unworthiness, of self-loathing. You know what I'm talking about here? And it may not even be connected to a particular action. It may be accumulation of things we feel we've screwed up in our lives or something. But it's that sense, this, this switching from some specific action, oh, I regret it, I'm sorry about it, to a sense that, that somehow I'm fundamentally flawed as a person. So this is what I mean by this deep kind of existential guilt. Now we want to notice something about this. Because if guilt is this sense that I am bad, then it's the flip side of pride, that I am good, I am superior, that arrogance. It's the same thing, it's just the negative version of this a positive feeling that we can have. And again, this pride is not just because I've done something good, it's just I am really a great person. I'm probably better than most of you out there. In fact, I know I'm better than most of you out there. So then if we understand this, we start to understand the dynamic at work underneath both of these. And we can actually observe this, especially if you're a meditator and, and you've learned to get some distance on your thoughts and you've learned not to try to change your thoughts and push them away, but just to observe what's going on. We can see that guilt arises, like pride, when there's a particular story going on. And I mean quite literally, there's thoughts forming in the mind about what a terrible person I am, how I always screw up, I'm no good, I should probably just kill myself, the world would be better off without me. And there's an actual story being created here. And the same thing with pride. I'm far beyond that, I don't have to do these practices, I'm such a superior spiritual person, whatnot. And so it all boils down to the same story here, it's what I call the story of I, and just different versions of it. And it's only a slight difference. It makes, it makes a big difference, but there's only a slight difference here. One version is, oh, what a good boy or girl am I? And the other version is, oh, what a bad boy or girl am I? But in either case, the main character is I. It's me. It's all about me. So this is the primal transgression. Did I feel like I am some entity, self, separate from the cosmos and other beings in a fundamental way? From a mystic's point of view, we don't have to do anything, an action. That itself is the transgression of the true nature of the cosmos. And that in itself causes us suffering. That in itself, before we've taken any action or whatever, that will cause us this fundamental sense of existential loneliness and then fear. So this is the root problem from a mystic's point of view. This sense of that I am a self. Here's what the Tibetan master Bokar Rinpoche says about it. 
The fundamental dysfunction of our minds takes the form of a separation between I and other. The root problem here. Here's uh, what Muhammad, in a, one of famous sayings, said. Your very being and existence is a sin which is like no other sin. Wow. Here's the anonymous Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing. Every man has plenty of cause for sorrow, but he alone understands the deep universal reason for sorrow who experiences that he is. Same thing. So as long as there's this experience of self, separate self, there's bound to be suffering. The Hindu mystic Ananda Maima, this great mystic of the last century, here's what she says. So long as the sense of me and mine remains, there is bound to be sorrow and want in the life of the individual. So this is interesting. If this is the case, then uh, wallowing in guilt really just reinforces this sense of I and the story of I. Even though it's a negative story, not only is it not solving the problem, it's enhancing the problem. And this is one of the great differences between mystics and other kinds of uh, spiritual teachers. Particularly in Christianity, I don't know about other religions, but in Christianity there's a whole thread of teaching that relies on making you feel guilty. What terrible sinners you are. You've got to repent. You're awful. You've got to rely on God. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, this and that. It gets everybody feeling more and more guilt. And from a mystic's point of view, that's exactly the wrong approach uh, to have here. And here's a Christian mystic, Catherine of Siena, and here's what she says about what she calls ultimate despair. And by ultimate despair, she means that kind of guilt that is so great that you feel you're damned, that nothing can save you, because you're so guilty, you're so full of sin. And here's what she says about it. This, oh, that's actually God telling her about it. All her writings are uh, revelations from God. So this is what God says to her. This sin of ultimate despair is much more displeasing to me and harmful to them than all the other evils they have committed. And this is why. Despair spurns my mercy by considering one's sinfulness greater than my goodness and mercy. So once one has fallen into this sin, there is no repentance. Isn't that psychologically astute? If you fall into this, that you are so bad, you are just beyond salvation, then... You've put yourself beyond salvation, and look how egotistical it is. And now we're talking in Christian terms, theistic terms. But it means your sin, your guilt, is greater than God's mercy. That is horribly egotistical. That's the height of, you know, this self-centeredness, really. So, what can we then do about guilt from a mystic's point of view? And the ultimate solution is, of course, to realize that there is no separate self. This is the heart of all mystical traditions. This is enlightenment, this is gnosis, this is whatever word a tradition uses. That is at the heart of it. 
And if there is no separate self, then there is no one to be bad and unworthy and loathsome and all those things. There's just nothing to support all this. So this is why a sense of deliverance from sin often accompanies or is a prelude to realization of no self. And I'll give you one example right from our own community. And that's Andrea Pucci, who some of you know. And this is a little excerpt from her account of Awakening, which is on our website. Uh, If you want to read the full account, you can go to the website and then you'll find a little place to click for Accounts of Awakening. And then Andrea Pucci is under there, P-U-C-C-I. You can read her account. And she was on retreat, one of our nine-day retreats, and her experience on the retreat was slowly deepening. She was jettisoning things, attachments and whatnot, right and left, as the retreat went on. So this is several days before her actual realization. But here's what she writes. In the morning, I woke up and I felt, wow, I'm sinless. I already told you about being brought up Catholic and how there was this great burden of feeling guilty and hiding your guilt, causing all kinds of secondary reactions and psychological stuff. And now, I just had this feeling. I am sinless. Because we're all here, and just by virtue of being born and coming into form, you're absolved. I just knew that. So there was this redemption, or deliverance, like all of life was perfect. Beautifully expressed. If some of you brought up Catholic, you may even relate to this uh, more. So, this is the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is to realize there is no one there. No one to be proud and no one to feel guilty. No one to be superior and no one to be inferior. It just doesn't exist. But then the question is, is there anything we can do about guilt short of full realization? Is there any way we can deal with guilt in a way that actually also helps us dismantle this delusion of self? And, of course, there is. And let's take an example from one tradition, the Tibetan tradition. They have a term called bodhicitta. And then there's absolute bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. Bodhicitta means Buddha mind. Bodhi is Buddha and Chitta is mind, so Bodhicitta. So absolute Bodhicitta is the awakened Buddha's mind. Relative Bodhicitta is the mind that aspires to awakening through compassion, compassion for all beings. So it's really the mind of compassion we're talking about. So listen to Tibetan master Jamgang Kontrol, and here's what he writes about this. At the beginning, As soon as you wake up in the morning, generate very strongly the impetus. Today I shall keep bodhicitta with me. During the day, maintain it with continuous mindfulness. At the end, when you go to sleep in the evening, examine your thoughts and actions of the day. If there were infringements of bodhicitta, enumerate the instances and acknowledge them and make a commitment that such will not occur in the future. If there have been no infringements, meditate joyfully and pray that you and all other beings may be able to engage in bodhicitta even more effectively in the future. So this is a very specific practice. 
something you can do. You wake up in the morning, you make a commitment to practice compassion, I'm translating into more general terms, throughout the day, and you try to be mindful of what you're doing and what you're saying, what's coming out of your mouth. And uh, you go through the day with this mindfulness of what is the compassionate thing to do in whatever situation you find yourself in. At the end of the day, before you go to sleep, you just run through the day and say, oh, why was I rude to that poor waitress? I mean, she's having a rough day, and I won't be rude to her next week when I go have lunch at the same restaurant. I'll make a point of that. It's very concrete. And it's also very important that if you don't find anything, you're not looking to find something to prove you're a sinner. If you didn't do anything unskillful or uncompassionate, fine, rejoice. This is not clouded by any of these psychological afflictions that we have. It's just very straightforward. And by the way, you'll find very similar advice in other traditions. Meister Eckhart, for instance, again, going back to the Catholic tradition, uh, writes at some length about the fault of people who overindulge in penances and, and whatnot. You know, they make a big deal out of it. And he says, this is, again, very egotistical. If you've done something wrong, sure, go to church, confess it, say your hundred Hail Marys or whatever, but get on with it, you know, don't wallow in it. So, the trick, of course, is always to actually put these teachings into practice. And this is what trips us up. We hear them, you come to a talk like this, you pick up one of these great books, uh, whatever you read about, oh, it's wonderful, it sounds great. But then we don't do it. We don't remember to do it. Yes, <laughs> we don't remember to do it, right? How many people have had this experience of having been exposed to teachings and then, you know, <laughs> yes, yeah, good, you're not alone, Hiromi. <laughs> So I thought we would today do a practice rather than just talk about it. We'd end this with a little meditation. And this is a variation of a kind of meditation that comes from the Tibetan tradition called sending and taking. And if you are interested in the general practice of sending and taking and don't know anything about it, I do have a talk in our library called, I think it's just called sending and taking. And, or you could check out a book. We have a number of books in the library on this topic. I think probably the most popular and the one that speaks to most uh, Americans anyway, most clearly is Pema Trojan's Start Where You Are. An excellent, excellent book. She gives you all kinds of concrete examples of how you can practice this in your everyday life. I highly recommend it. But I thought we'd do a little formal practice today and I will guide you through a meditation and then uh, at the end we can talk about it a little bit and see how it so actually, I need this uh, microphone here. I just have to take a moment to reset this up. So I am going to ring. The, I am going to ring the gong uh, once to let us know we're beginning, and twice to let us know when it's over. So you might want to assume your meditation posture, and. For this meditation, you can actually close your eyes. This is a meditation that involves some visualization, and most people, I think, uh, have a better time of that with their eyes closed. And also, let me warn you in front that a lot of people have trouble with this kind of meditation in a group. So even if this is not successful for you here, if you're still interested, you might try it when you're alone. Sometimes being alone, it's easier to open up to our emotions than it is 
in a group. So don't be discouraged if nothing happens here. But let's try it. It's an experiment. So here we go. So let's begin just by calming our minds through focusing our attention on our breath. Observing how the breath comes in, turns around, goes out. Just ignoring whatever thoughts are arising, allow them to rise and pass away. Follow the sensations that arise throughout your body. Follow the sensations spreading down through your legs to your toes, out through your torso, through your arms, to your fingers, hands. up into your head. Let go of all effort. And try and get a sense of the natural spaciousness of awareness. Now recall something harmful you did that makes you feel guilty.
remember it as vividly and as in a detailed a way as possible. Allow your mind to make whatever judgments or comments about how terrible it is that it wants to. Notice that in this story, you are the main character. It's a story about what a terrible thing you did. And notice how egotistical that is. Just notice without any judgment about that, just that's the way it is. Now let that story dissolve and focus your attention on the person or being who was harmed. And try to feel their suffering. And in feeling their suffering, allow whatever sense of compassion wants to arise to arise. And based on that compassion, See if you don't feel a genuine regret that you caused that suffering. And a commitment to try not to do it in the future.
And you can atone for having committed that harm by sending out a simple wish or prayer that that person be relieved of their suffering and be happy. Just breathe that out with your breath. Finally, let's extend that prayer, that wish, to all beings, that they may be relieved of their suffering and be happy. So, what was your experience? Anybody have anything to report? Yes. Well, that broke me out in a sweat like 20 minutes on a treadmill, and I had about four places, and it was really profound for me. It was um, just before you got to guide us to seeing that judging ourselves that way was ego, it had occurred to me that all those things were done by ego. Those things came from the ego. So that's pretty sad. They almost always do. It's, the ego's trying to protect or enhance itself in some way, and that's usually why we cause harm to others. <coughs> Excuse me. Occasionally, it is unintentional. But we can still feel regret. We don't have to get defensive about it. Well, I didn't mean it, da-da-da. I mean, a harm was caused. Somebody suffered. And we can feel compassion for that suffering, whether we intended to or not. So it doesn't make any difference. That's how we take the ego out of it. And that's what actually, at a very practical level, makes our lives more civil. We're quick to apologize to each other, to say, oh, I didn't you know, mean it, I'm sorry, you know, this and that, rather than make everything worse by getting hostile and defensive. The healing side of it was quite beautiful, and expanding it to all beings. 
And this is a standard ending for a Buddhist sending and taking practice. That is how most uh, sending and taking practices end. Anybody else? Yes. I had um, probably only had what well, I had probably had experience where it was been a death, and I was aware of uh, uh, my mother and my husband, aware of uh, things that I, as looking back as you do as someone who dies, seems like there's more important things you think about than you did when you took things for granted when they're alive. And uh, there were some things that I had some great guilt about it. There's no way to atone or make amends, which I would have been given any, <laughs> any kind of anything for if you have an opportunity to do that. And that's been probably my worst problem with guilt. Well, but this sending and taking practice you can do with dead people. You can? Sure. That's fine. I'm not going to go into the permit with the... The what? The, with the creator, they're not even a person or anything anymore, are they? No, but what we're doing with this is we are expressing our sense of compassion for suffering. I mean, first of all, we're recognizing that our guilt is egotistical. It doesn't help. In fact, if anything, it makes things worse. So what we want to touch into as an antidote to that is our sense of compassion for suffering, whether we caused it or not. So if someone who's dead has suffered, we can still recall their uh, experience, we can feel that suffering with them, and then we can wish them to be relieved of that suffering. Without owning it. Yes, that's the whole point. The sending is giving it away. Owning the fault of causing it, causing harm. Well, owning the fault in the sense of regret. Owning the fault meaning that you're mindful, oh, yes, I did this, something I did. But that's not what we want to dwell on. If you keep dwelling on something I did, something I did, something I did, that's, you know, this is the story of I. But you want to dwell on the suffering and recognize the suffering. And that's what opens our hearts to compassion. And then that's given away. We give our compassion. We give our wishes, our prayers. And that's how you let go of all that. Okay. Try it. Yes, Kathy. Um, my experience this morning, um, when I woke up, for some reason I was thinking about my dad who died, and I was remembering, it's just kind of ironic that we're doing this practice course, as, that I was remembering that he called the night before he died, and I didn't want to talk to him, and I had Steve talk to him. And so, and then he died. And he had given a message that he wanted um, me to take care of my little sisters, the two youngest. So he knew he was going to die. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I always say that he died with a broken heart, you know, because there's a lot of bad things that happen in his life and, and stuff like that. But in this practice, um, that he was the one that came to my mind that I did not take that phone call. And, you know, and I so I was... Um, Doing, I had the real crisp image of it just because, you know, it was just this morning I was thinking about mm -hmm. it. And, um, and I just could see so clearly of when I started having the compassion for his suffering is that it automatically transformed into this huge, spacious compassion for everything. It was like there's no difference at all. It was... It was beautiful. Oh, that's wonderful. That's the experience of what mystics talk about. 
which sounds weird to us. Suffering is not personal. We take it personally and we get in trouble for taking it personally. But the truth of the matter is suffering is suffering. Whether it occurs over here, over here, over here, everybody suffers. This is what we have in common. I mean, this is really the thing that unites us at the first level of unity as, as human beings. So to recognize that is the beginning of letting go of suffering as something personal. See, I mean, this is almost impossible to explain. One of the things about waking up is that you no longer have personal suffering. But that doesn't mean there's no suffering. In fact, in a certain sense, you have more suffering. I mean, everywhere you look is suffering, do you know? We're drowning in sea of suffering here. But if you don't take it personally, then it's actually almost sweet. There's a spaciousness and a connection and a love that makes it almost sweet. I mean, not that you'd want to create suffering for it, you know. So it's a whole different take on suffering than our normal, uh, the way we re respond to it, out of fear and protection and whatnot. So that's a wonderful example of just that, how that suffering can turn into this great spacious sense of love. Yes? So Joe, in a way, if there's no personal suffering, then there's no personal transgression either. <laughs> exactly all, right. All our transgressions are one. It's just the dance. And I don't care how enlightened you are, you're going to do things inadvertently or sometimes unskillfully that are going to cause people suffering. The Buddha caused people suffering. He caused people to be jealous of him, and several people tried to assassinate him. He, I mean, his just being the Buddha caused people suffering. It's not his fault. It's how they respond to him. But, you know, that's the way it is. So this is part of the dance of life. We try to dance and not step on each other's toes. And when we step on each other's toes, we say, you know, I'm sorry. That ego likes to take credit for the suffering. Exactly right. And that's why... In the story like, I am so guilty, no one can save me, the ego is still starring. All the ego cares about is that it stars in the story of I, whether it plays the villain or the hero or heroine. It doesn't matter, as long as it gets the star. Yes, Lauren. Um, I experienced two things. Uh, the first is a kind of relief or a release as the shell and the burden that the ego is let go of, and I don't have to carry that. Right. As I take up concern for somebody else. So, and then the later thing I feel is a kind of emerging, not just with that injured individual and release on my own self, but well, I guess what you just said, into the, into the compassion for all, into the sense that uh, it's a union with. Yes. A release of the ego and then suddenly you're not only compassionate with this person but then the universe and suddenly you're rejoined. So it's both that. The, the, the great relief of getting rid of the personal version and then the uh, ecstasy, I guess, of joining the universal. Exactly right. And, you know, we can see when we are feeling guilt, we can see what a relief would be to be able to get rid of this guilt, to lay the burden down, you know, and that's a function of a lot of exoteric religions. Uh, what we don't recognize is that when we are prideful, that's a burden too. That either way, the self is a burden. And we're always living our lives trying to hang on to it and protect it and enhance it and all that. And we're just, you know, we're piling up rocks on ourselves. Put it down. Let it go, you know. 
a lot of Jesus' teachings are, from a mystic's point of view, are just this, you know, stop worrying so much about tomorrow, what you're going to eat, what you're going to put on, what's going to happen, you know, look around you, the universe takes care of itself, it's okay, stop worrying, put it down, what a burden. Yeah. Last week with an Eckhart's film. Yes. One of the things he said that really, that really resonated with me was that death is not the opposite of life. Death is the opposite of birth. <laughs> yes. And right now I have a friend who is in the last stages of heart failure and she is just petrified of dying and she's holding on to life with both hands and totally in denial of everything that's going on and that she knows she's going to get better and and I just so wish I could say tell her that and that she would see it but I think it's too late because she's she's a, she just doesn't believe in anything mystical or, or and it's so sad to see someone going through that when if they could just change their perspective a little bit, it would just be so different. Yes, and what you can do is do a little sending and taking for them. See, it may not be skillful to try to bring it up with her. It may drive her more into denial. But we always want to be open and we want to be looking for clues. And one of the ways we stay open or get open is to do sending and taking. So do you visit her? Yes. Uh, so when you're with her in a quiet moment, you do a little sending and taking, or just if you can't do the actual practice, you have that attitude. And then you listen, and it may well be she will tell you, not in so many words, that she wants to hear something like this. If we're attentive of people, we don't push our, our, our teachings, our wisdom on them, but we do when we see an opening, a request coming through, then we can you know, just share a little bit. So if you go in with a mind that, oh, this is hopeless, the poor woman and all that, that's more story. I mean, that's, that's fine. But when you're right with the person, you don't want to have any story because you want to let them tell you what they need. And they will, one way or another. Hiromi, yes. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to just get a taste of what it's like to practice. I read a Children's book, but... I never actually get the hang of it, so I'm, I'm glad we did this way today. And uh, another thing is that I have a very specific question when you talked about uh, when you were guiding us through the um, actual meditation, you said, okay, so feel, feel like vividly as you can about what made you feel guilty. And as trying to breathe, but as soon as you said that, my stomach felt so hot and tense, and I, I wasn't sure whether I need to actually feel that tension or do I actually try to breathe out of it? Uh, that's one question. And um, because my kids are very small, two and a half and four, I don't have challenge once, like once a day, just every single moment, it's like constantly. I need to just intervene what's going on. So I think this is a really good practice. So I wanted to kind of understand what exactly needs to happen because I think it was really helpful that I felt the compassion. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yes. So I don't want to react every time something happens. So we didn't spend much time doing it, but it's very important to create the sense of spaciousness 
before you begin this, especially if you haven't done a lot of meditation practice, a spacious awareness kind of practice, because it's the spaciousness that allows you to feel things vividly and strongly without that sense of suffocation, without that tension and tightness. Because once you get that, then the attention's all back on me, and what am I going to do about this, you know what I mean? And So I would just spend more time, if you're going to do a practice like this, preparing yourself by getting in a very spacious meditative state. And I think that's, by the way, uh, even though I don't have kids, I'm sure if you started off every day with as much spaciousness as possible, it would help in almost any situation. So that's what I would recommend. And if you want, I would recommend checking out my talk on sending and taking. It goes into more detail, and it's also a little bit broader, because it's not just about this specific uh, afflicted emotion of guilt. It's about all kinds of problems that arise that we encounter and how we can just use this simple technique of breathing out and creating that spaciousness. Yes, Matt. Now Matt's the one who asked the question to begin with. Well, thank you for your talk. I think you really thoroughly answered the question. I just have two kind of side questions. So it sounds like basically there's really no difference in dealing with guilt arising from intentional or careless unintentional actions from the mystic's perspective. And then the other one, I was wondering if you could touch a little bit, I've heard on some of your recordings you talk about guilt as being an echo emotion as in the sense that it requires the sense of I in order to even exist. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that um, kind of theory, that you, that, you know, that way of describing emotions that you have, because I think it's very useful. Well, first of all, yes. I don't think it makes any difference if it's intentional or unintentional. It does in a, in a relative kind of sense. If it's intentional, then maybe it's something you've gotten a habit of doing and you can correct it. If it was totally unintentional, you, I don't know, you, um, uh, what would be something totally unintentional? Bicyclist right out in front of you and you ran over. There you go. There, a very good example. Yes, a very good example. And nothing you could have actually done about it. It was so fast and so forth. So you're still going to regret that. And the point is, whoever got hit, they're suffering. Or maybe they're dead. So it's still an occasion for compassion. So whether you're responsible or not, it doesn't matter. The only difference is here, there won't be really anything to learn from experience. Or maybe you're a little distracted driving. So you know, okay, what you have to learn from experience is you've got to be very vigilant when you drive. You know, a little something like that. But the difference between intentional and unintentional in a relative sense is only what you can, uh, how you can amend your behavior to avoid doing it again. Uh, and what was the other question on the other part? Oh, there's a, a big myth that enlightenment or enlightened beings or whatever don't experience emotions. The image is sometimes drawn from like the image of the Buddha sitting there with that little enigmatic smile on his face and that People could be being slaughtered in front of him. People could be being tortured and all that. And, you know, he's beyond it all because he's the Buddha. See? So this is what it means not to suffer. You don't experience any emotions. And this is really the ego's dream. The ego would love to be in a fortress there and to be able to look out on the world and not be bothered by all this stuff. And this is a total perversion of what enlightenment is really about. It's not about getting rid of emotions, not having emotional responses to life. The way I like to describe it is we have 
are natural emotions that arise partly out of our bodily needs, hunger and whatnot are really primal ones, and then social emotions that uh, arise from the fact we live in society and whatnot. And things like anger, fear, desire, uh, these are considered, in most spiritual traditions, somehow something's wrong with them, but the Tibetans are, and I think, by the way, the Tibetans have the best way of talking about this, skillful enough to point out that they are only a problem under delusion. And then they call them afflicted emotions. But each one of these emotions contains a wisdom energy. And the wisdom energy of the emotion is an energy that can be used for beneficial purposes. So if you get rid of the emotion, then you get rid of the wisdom energy. So just to give you one example, desire, I mean greed, lust and all that, that is actually compassion. But under delusion, it expresses itself as greed. If you got rid of greed, the emotion, then you're getting rid of compassion. So you don't want to get rid of it, but you want to transform it. The way you transform it is to see that it ain't yours, the emotion. That it's a play of the divine. It arises and it ain't aimed at anyone. And so then it's neither good nor bad in, the, in an ultimate sense. And in a relative sense, compassion can be used to help people. So that same energy that goes into creating greed can be used for that. Now, there are some emotions that are artificial, uh, echo emotions, that they can only arise with a sense of I there. If you take out the sense of I, the emotion disappears. And guilt is one of those. Loneliness is another one. So you strip out the self, and then there's this free play of emotions. Uh, well, I always come back to this example. It's like sorrow. Normally, we don't like to experience sorrow. Something's wrong with sorrow because we treat it as belonging to me. But have you ever listened to a sad song and enjoyed it? There's a beautiful song in the movie Black Orpheus. It's all about the poor and, and life is like a dewdrop on a flower and it disappears and it comes and it goes so quickly. And this, that's gorgeous. It's lovely. You wouldn't want to be without that song. It arouses sorrow. That's the emotion it's designed to arouse. But when I listen to the song, it's not my sorrow. It's just sorrow playing through. So sorrow can be there without me. But loneliness or guilt. You ever gone to a movie and felt guilty? You might go to a movie and feel anger or fear. Did you ever come out of a movie and say, I felt so guilty about that movie? I don't go to those kinds of movies. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that answers your question. It's, it's really more a question of not a theory, but experience. Theories and teachings are useful to guide you to experience. But you can start to experience this yourself by working with emotions. And there's a whole other... A uh, set of techniques, meditative techniques, like we did with sending and taking here, that work with various afflicted emotions. It was a great question. Yes, good questions bring forth good answers. We're mutually dependent on each other in this. So, Matt, thank you for the question. And uh, until we see you all again, peace. <laughs>